the gospel for me is not about a transaction. The gospel for me is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Uh, and so ultimately it's about his lordship, his kingship, uh, of which salvation is a, a beautiful and primary fruit, but not just the salvation of our individual lives, the salvation of the cosmos, the salvation of the world. And so uh, I think if we begin from that place, the gospel moves from being anthropocentric, human-centered, me-centered. Uh, it moves from being transactional. It moves from being uh, relegated to an atonement theory, relegated to a post-mortem existence. Uh, the good news is about Jesus Christ. And if we begin there with he is our good news and his kingdom is our good news, um, at that point, we can find ourselves living faithfully in the world. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. I'm Susie Lahoud here with Jonathan Walton and Sai Hoekstra. Today we have an interview with Rich Velotis, who is the Brooklyn-born lead pastor of New Life Fellowship, a large multiracial church in Elmhurst, Queens in New York City. He is also a key speaker for the movement Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. He has a BA in pastoral ministry from Nyack College and an MDiv from Alliance Theological Seminary. His award-winning book, The Deeply Formed Life, was released in September of 2020. So just due to some last-minute uh, scheduling conflicts, Susie was not able to uh, make the interview, but Jonathan and I, in this interview, we discussed that book, The Deeply Formed Life, what it's like pastoring an extremely diverse community out of white supremacy, the relationship between emotional health and discipleship, and so much more. And just a quick reminder, please subscribe to our blog at ktfpress.com to get access to our weekly newsletter, which is a regular roundup of media around culture, faith, and politics worthy of your time and attention. You will also get writing from the three of us and bonus episodes of this show. Your subscription supports this show and upcoming book projects, and it will hopefully allow us in the future to set other plans in motion, like paying other writers to contribute to our blog. And if you're not in a financial place to subscribe to the blog, we totally understand. You can support us by going to ktfpress.com and signing up for our free mailing list, subscribing to the podcast, and rating and reviewing the show wherever you're listening. All of these things are really helpful to us, too. Thanks so much. So now that that's over with, let's get to our interview with Rich Velotis, Jonathan, and Sai. Pastor Rich, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. Thanks, uh, guys, for having me. I look forward to a good conversation. Us, too. So uh, we're talking about, or at least part of this conversation will be about your book, and um it's called The Deeply Formed Life, and you discuss, you know, the importance of spiritual disciplines rooted in emotional health, and it kind of goes through several specific practices that have been useful to you and that you think would be useful to readers. Uh, and then the book takes what I think some people might find a bit of a hard turn, or a, a maybe a bit of a jarring turn, into discussing race and racism. And so I think we would like to know why your book makes that pivot and what is the relationship between racial justice, emotional health, and spiritual disciplines in your mind. At the core of what we're doing and what I was trying to do in the book really flows out of the life of our congregation with our five values. And the first value being contemplative rhythms. Uh, and for me, 
that first uh, those that first value and the practices that flow out of that really serves as the foundation to witness to the gospel and witness to the kingdom of God uh, in ways that address matters like uh, race. And and so for me, first of all, the foundation is a life of prayerful union with Jesus, a life of silence, a life of contemplation, a life where we are moving beyond uh, dualistic thinking, either or thinking, black or white thinking, into a way that's marked by compassion and love and justice and forgiveness, all things that are often competing interests within us that find union in co the contemplative life. And so, but, so it's out of that place where we are addressing some of the uh, or I'm addressing some of the more complicated, divisive issues of our day. And it just so happens that that second uh, theme or value that I talk about as it pertains to racial justice and reconciliation uh, comes after that, namely because our congregation is so diverse, uh, racially, ethnically, generationally. Um, and so I wanted to just dive right into it. Uh, so that's the flow in our context and new life. And I wanted it to be somewhat consistent with that. After a uh, number of months that the book has been out, if I was going to make one change, I, I would consider though, having the contemplative rhythms as the first theme that I address and then interior examination as the second, which mm -hmm. then positions us to really address matters of race a little bit more effectively. But, um, but that gives you a, in terms of the thinking of what went behind it. Totally, and I did definitely did not mean to suggest that the book was in, uh, uh, was poorly edited or in the wrong yeah. order. I just I I was <laughs> I was more just trying to highlight. I, I do not think that that's a connection that a lot of people make, right? Spiritual disciplines and racial justice, like so many people separate out those things. Well, yeah, absolutely, and and one of the tasks that I was trying to do in I mean just holding these values together is to resist what I call formational compartmentalization, mm. in which we mm. fragment and separate um, aspects of discipleship, aspect of life in Christ, aspects of spiritual formation uh, that need to belong together, but for whatever reason uh, are often separated and compartmentalized. So that was my way of also saying, no, these things belong together, not in different books, but really in one book in this way. So you mentioned the diversity of your church along a couple of different uh, axes, but one of them that I think some people might be interested in is that you have uh, political diversity. You have both pro and anti-Trumpers that have been in your pews. And I think uh, a lot of pastors would be interested to know how it is that you preach about discipling people out of white supremacy and Christian nationalism in that context without frankly, losing the Trump supporters. Um, so could you tell us what your approach is when you're doing that? Um, who said I wasn't losing Trump supporters? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, without and losing that, all the Trump supporters. That's right. I'm not losing, I'm not losing all of them uh, because there's plenty that remain and there's some who have left, which has made 2020 very difficult uh, mm. for me pastorally uh, and, and relationally and emotionally. Um, you know, on, on one level, my addressing of, of the gospel and politics in such a diverse political space. Now, uh, I, I've not done this kind of research to get empirical data on this, but my hunch, my pastoral hunch is that 30% of our church, uh, give or take, voted for Trump. 30% of our church, give or take, voted for Biden. 
uh, 20 or so percent of our church abstained and another 20 percent uh, probably wrote someone else in. Uh, and so that gives you kind of a bit of the spectrum of where people are at in our congregation. Uh, for me, um, I, I've tried to do a couple of things. I have not done this all um, successfully. I mean, I think I've had some good days and I've had some things that I've done that could be done a little differently. Uh, and so, but at the core of it, I'm trying to, number one, be faithful to my understanding of what the gospel is. Uh, and so that, that is the foundation of everything I'm doing. And my working definition of the gospel is that the gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ and in his life, death, uh, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And so wherever there are manifestations of sin and death, uh, I am here to announce that uh, those things are no match for the gospel. And we want to now witness to that which means speaking against those powers of sin and death. And so for me, it's a matter of gospel faithfulness. It's also a matter of pastoral uh, conscience and conviction where I want to live from that place. Uh, yet at the same time, I want to be emotionally connected uh, to the people in my congregation. So what people do not see, they see the sermons, but they don't see the Zoom conversations. They see the, the tweets, but they don't see the phone calls I'm making. Uh, to people who I know see the world very differently than I do. And at the same time, I'm trying to ask questions and be curious and understand why they vote for who they vote for in the way that they do. Uh, at the same time, I, we have lost people who uh, have supported Donald Trump. Uh, and so I don't know if there's any easy way around it except normalizing the difficulty of it and trying to remain close to myself and my own conscience as the pastoral and spiritual leader of our congregation, while at the same time doing my best to remain emotionally close to people. So it's a very difficult, delicate, emotionally draining dance. Um, and I don't know if there's um, any other way to do it, but to go down that route. So I, I'll just say lastly here in response to this question, Family systems theory has been very important to me in my own development as a, as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. And at the core of family systems is self-differentiation, which is exactly what I just said, remaining close to myself and remaining close to others in times of high anxiety as a, and, and resisting the polar opposite pulls of cutting people off or being enmeshed in them. Uh, I have to do that hard work consistently so as to preach in a way that my conscience is clear. And at the same time, I'm doing my best to remain emotionally close to people I love. Full disclosure, like Pastor Rich is my pastor when I say Pastor Rich. So I, <laughs> I'm just going to be straight up. Um, and so I am biased that um, I I deeply respect the leadership and like what you do as a pastor and a leader and as a shepherd of a diverse group of sheep. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, as you were talking about you know, holding on to yourself while remaining close to people emotionally, while communicating across difference. Yeah. Um, what does that look like when you're trying to stay emotionally close to someone, but going across difference, but communicating like this is a this is an issue of salvation, the issue of the gospel, and something at the core of our faith. Uh, on a day to day, mm -hmm. what what I experience? I mean, the only thing I can control is what I say and how I say it. 
which means at certain points, uh, I'm, I'm going to maybe be perceived as saying things that are uh, insensitive, judgmental, uh, uh, blaming. Uh, so whenever I, for example, whenever I say the phrase white supremacy or whiteness or white normativity, um, the number of emails that I get from, <laughs> from people in our church. And, and just to be clear, there are not a lot of white people in our church. <laughs> so I yes. mean, there's, I would say, you know, 12% maybe of our church is why mm-hmm. my life has changed significantly over the years. So I'm getting emails from Puerto Ricans. I'm getting emails yeah. from uh, Chinese Americans. I'm getting emails from uh, first and second generation Koreans, you know? So, uh, so it's not the simple black and white thing. So what does this look like on a daily basis? I can control what I say, what I tweet, uh, but there are a lot of very challenging conversations that I'm having with people. I think, Jonathan, for me, I mean, I, the only thing I could say is this is the expansive view of the gospel that I have, mm. which for me transcends um, uh, you know, matters of just personal salvation, matters of atonement theory, matters of a post-mortem existence when we die. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. What does it look like? It looks like lots of anxiety. What does it look like? Mm-hmm. It looks like lots of um, me disappointing a lot of people. What does it look like? It looks like uh, people leaving the church, and I find mm-hmm. out three to four months later uh, through somebody else. Um, I, I can only... Uh, pay attention to what I believe God has entrusted me with as the shepherd of this congregation. The thing that it, that I that I deeply would like for for parishioners to understand and like for lay people to understand because the way that Christianity in America is set up is that like there's one person playing and we're all spectating, right? Yeah. Um, and it sets up that type of like spiritual consumption, but then also the subsequent judgment of the product that I've just received. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what I what I would hope to do, like in this conversation, in podcast, in the way that we lead. And I think you model this and other leaders as well, uh, is that like your people like engage as whole people with other broken people trying to follow a perfect Jesus. Yeah. Right. And the follow up question would be like, are there any. um tangible costs or situations that you can point to that we just don't see that could maybe inspire compassion, could maybe inspire understanding and empathy for that person who's sitting in the church about to send that snarky email to say, I'm actually emailing a human. The, the cost that I, I mean, here, here's a few of them. Um, mm. Having uh, many different moments in a given year, sometimes mm. weeks where I cannot catch a satisfying breath because mm. of the level of anxiety that I'm carrying because mm. of so many people who are um, uh, who see the world different than me than I do and are saying harsh things or mm. judgmental things or making lots of assumptions about who I am. For example, I mean, we, there was a number of uh, of churches that organized a uh, uh, prayer protest after mm. George Floyd's murder and you know, New Life was one of them. And I, you know, I prayed at the event. I marched down Queens Boulevard. And um, to get email, you know, my, there was a picture where my my kids had a Black Lives Matter sign that they were holding on to. And to get emails from a couple of congregants who were now roping in my children in their comments that 
they were holding on holding up Black Lives Matter signs, and now they have certain to, something to say about my children. Um, you know, people don't see that. Uh, people don't see the level of uh, assumptions that people have uh, that because I might say one thing, they have now interpreted that as this is what you mean across the board. Uh, and much of the, uh, which is might be strange for people who are outside of our context, much of the biggest points of stress are, is around racism at New Life Fellowship Church for me as a lead pastor, mm-hmm. which you would think, wow, you guys are 75 nations represented. There's so much diversity. It, the diversity is reflected on every level of the church. Wow, you guys must be having a great time. Not really. Uh, so, uh, and so, and I love the congregation. I love the beauty of our church. But when you start, but when you start talking about powers and principalities, like matters of white supremacy, um, the demons are going to manifest, and the struggle is going to intensify, and the anxiety is going to persist. And so, what's the cost that I pay? Well, there are times where I cannot find a satisfying breath in a given mm-hmm. week because my physiological. Uh, my, my physiology now has now been impacted because of my anxiety. So mm-hmm. that's what lots of people don't see, but um, uh, those are some of the costs, minimal costs, you know, at, at least that um, I experience on a month to month basis, depending on what's happening in the life of our country and our nation. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you for being willing to expound and engage on that. Like I, I really appreciate it. And, I, and I, I'm hoping that it's not more costly for you to talk about it and then also I hope it's helpful for people to to actually hear that like making these decisions is costly, not performative. Right. Yeah. I wish I could just preach a sermon on uh, what? Or, uh, John chapter three and just talk about Nicodemus <laughs> the whole time <laughs> and not have to worry about uh, what's happening in the, I wish I could just do that. That would be awesome. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'd get less emails. It'd be wonderful. Uh, and at the same time, I feel like uh, God has entrusted me uh, with a particular context and congregation, and I need to steward uh, the gospel in that way. So, But boy, I, I wish I could just talk about Nicodemus and nothing else. That'd be nice. <laughs> well, one other thing I wanted to say, I don't want us... I, I don't want to flatten or ignore or move past the ways that these things are so difficult for you. But I also just keep thinking like, that's how Jesus did his ministry. It was not easy. It was a huge mess. He lost tons of people in the process, pretty much everyone. And, you know, ended up to the point where he was, you know, sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane, like, which is not to say, I don't want to like glorify suffering or anything like that. Right. I just, I, I am sitting here thinking just how much more like Jesus could the church have looked over the last five years. Yes. If every pastor in America was thinking this way, like it's just, it's sort of mind boggling and I'm just glad that you're doing it. No, absolutely. And and I, I get it. No, I, when I think about what I am attempting to do and what many other pastors have done better than I have, I, I mean, Dallas Willard said, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do it so we didn't have to. He did it so we could join him. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. when I think about the, the lack of satisfying breaths that I get and the anxiety that I have that, oh, I got to have another conversation with someone in our congregation this week about this matter here. Uh, for me, I recognize I, I believe I'm being faithful to the way of Jesus and his kingdom, which in turn means I'm going to experience 
some of the things that Jesus experienced. Uh, I, I want to be, I don't know if I've been able to get to the point like Paul, where Paul, the apostle Paul says that I counted all joy, you know, or uh, I, you know, a privilege to suffer like Christ has, or James says, I counted all, counted all joy when you fall mm-hmm. into all kinds of tests. I don't know if I've gotten to that point, uh, <laughs> but that is definitely on my, my mind when I think about some of these things. Yeah. Can I ask, was there a moment at some point in the last several years where you realized that you as a leader had to step out and lead in this kind of anti-racist way despite what it might and did cost you? Oh, oh, oh yeah. Um, the point for me was after Ferguson. Um, that, that, was the, that was the point for me. There's something shifted in my... So we're talking now... 2014, I believe, 2014, yep. 2015, um, where, you know, the shooting of Michael Brown, um, the killing of Michael Brown, the 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 uh, Ferguson riots and such and, and protests. That was the moment for me where something awakened pastorally. Now, you have to understand my seminary education um, exposed me to uh theology that was not just evangelical. I mean, I was reading James Cone. I was reading Gustavo Gutierrez. I was reading liberation theology. I was reading and exposing myself to all kinds of theologies of justice. Um, at the same time, so that stuff was in me, but then something happened in after Ferguson where I think it happened for a lot of people actually, uh, where something was awakened in me. And I said, uh, I need to begin to address this. And then there was one, it might've been 2015. I preached a sermon on, I came back from a sabbatical, you know, being away for a summer uh, for a month. And I preached a sermon on justice and there was a different tone and tenor to my sermon. I just knew something had clicked in my preaching that day Mm. that has changed ever since. But that's the time that for me marks a shift in my thinking and my pastoring and how I was going to apply the theology that I had uh, come to believe in. In the midst of those changes happening for you, what were some of the the spiritual practices, some of the things that brought you joy, um, that kept you in Christ and not in the world? Yeah, I I think of probably um, three to four kinds of relationships more than anything Mm -hmm. else that kept me grounded. Um, uh, you know, being able to, I, I, I think there was a shift in me, uh, in, in which I, I began to externalize some of my own anxiety to my wife, Rosie, in ways that I hadn't done before, inviting her into my interior world. Uh, and that, that came at the, uh, advice of a therapist that I have seen over the last few years seasonally. Uh, I tend to go whenever I get criticized, whenever I, I am in a difficult uh, season, I very easily go into what I term the hole. And in order to get out of the hole, what I've discovered is I need to learn how to externalize certain things. Hmm. Uh, and so Rosie being the first relationship and relating to her differently than I had in previous years was really important. Additionally, I, I reached out to three other pastor friends of mine in similar contexts, leading similar sized churches around the country. And I just knew I needed a monthly space of 90 minutes and they needed it as well to talk about 
um, the pain, to talk about the anxiety, the challenges, the questions. Uh, in 2020, we be, usually began our monthly meeting with, so who left your church this month? You know, So having mm-hmm. a space to <laughs> uh, process with them was was really important, uh, you know. And third, you know, if you're looking at it in concentric circles, you know, my wife is in the middle. I have a close um, a network of of three other friends that I meet with for ninety minutes uh, each month. Uh, a therapist, a spiritual director. Uh, these are the relationships that have sustained my joy ultimately, uh, and over the years. And then prior to the pandemic, I remember my therapist telling me, "Rich, what are the life giving?" activities that you love. And for me, I love sports. I love basketball. Hmm. And I never forgot the day when I, he, I said basketball. He goes, well, when's the last time you played ball? I said, well, it's been a long time. He said, well, why don't you once a week, middle of the day, uh, especially if it's nice outside, go to the nearby, the nearest court you can find and play. And I thought, I can't do that. Uh, hmm. Now, I, I, I manage my own schedule. I do whatever I want with my schedule. And for whatever reason, I was like, no, I can't do that. No way. And he said, well, you're going to give it a shot. And I, I began to do that just every uh, Thursday or so it was, middle of the day, got my ball in my trunk. I'm going to go like, go for an hour and shoot some hoops. And it was amazing how the simplicity of that little activity uh, brought me great joy uh, that allowed me to uh, lead and preach and live from a different place. So if I could just go back to something that we touched on earlier, but I, I don't think we made entirely explicit. You say in your book uh, that you think of the gospel as including soteriology, but not just being limited to it. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I, the gospel for me is not about a transaction. The gospel for me is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Uh, and so ultimately, it's about his lordship, his kingship. Uh, of which salvation is uh, a, a beautiful and primary fruit, but not just the salvation of our individual lives, the salvation of the cosmos, the salvation of the world. And so uh, to say the good news, what is the good news? The good news is not of what? The good news is a who. It is a mm. person in Jesus. He is our good news. Uh, and I think if we begin from that place, the gospel moves from being anthropocentric. It begins from being human-centered, me-centered. Uh, it moves from being transactional. It moves from being um, uh, rele- uh, relegated to an atonement theory, relegated to a post-mortem existence. Uh, the good news is about Jesus Christ. And if we begin there with he is our good news and his kingdom is our good news, um, at that point, we can find ourselves living faithfully in the world. So I love, listen, I want people, I want as many people to be rescued personally by the saving love of Jesus. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, I experienced that uh, some 22 years ago, not just me, 14 other family members on one night in a storefront Latino Pentecostal church in East New York, Brooklyn, uh, experienced the saving love of Jesus Christ. I want as many people to experience that. And at the same time, I recognize that's not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is a person. It's Jesus Christ, and everything else flows from that place. One of the things, as I was kind of on my own journey away from a hyper-doctrinally focused, abstracted, evangelical Mm -hmm. type of faith, was that statement by Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know, just breaking down the second part of that. Someone saying, I am the truth— makes no sense 
to a theology that thinks of truth as a propositional statement to which you assent mentally. <laughs> and right. um, I, I just so resonate with that because that was, I think, one of the things that sort of shook me out of my thinking and went, well, this makes no sense with the faith that I have learned. So what do I need mm. to rethink here? Mm. 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 That's really well said, Sarn. Something actually that, that stood out to me in the book and was reminded, I was reminded of as you were talking is that it's relationships that that carry us through this nonsense, right? Our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with other people, our relationship towards ourselves. Um, what are some like steps that we can take? And when I say we, I mean followers of Jesus. I mean um, men towards women, women towards men. I mean like the sheep of God, like to cultivate um, intimacy to connect with others in more genuine and authentic ways so that we can actually partner more to with, with each other and with God to participate as John Tyson would say, like in the renewal of all things, you know? Now, you, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I tend to uh, root everything in, uh, you know, theological convictions. Uh, and so that, that question for me really at its core is theological uh, and I, I think he begins with, you know, what what does it mean to be human? Um, you know, I, I read something, um, uh, I think it was yesterday, that said something along the lines of, you can be strong alone, you can be successful alone, you can persevere alone, but you can't be human alone. And uh, I, I think that's true. I think uh, to be human is not simply about you know, to be made in the image of God is not simply about uh, uh, rationality and uh, having agency and uh, feelings and such. I think that's part of it. But at, at the core of being human and developing deeper into my humanity is a recognition that I am part of something uh, bigger than myself, that I belong to my neighbor, that I, I am intrinsically connected, that my very human flourishing and emotional flourishing and relational flourishing must happen in the context of these life-giving relationships. So I think if that is the theological starting point, um, uh, which I believe it is, I think at that point, now the question becomes, how do I open myself up to this? Uh, mm -hmm. Now, in order to do that, I, I do think there is often lots of interior work that must be accomplished before we can move close to people. Part of the chapters on interior examination is to recognize the ways that we have been wounded, uh, the ways that uh, we are still carrying uh, big T trauma and small T traumas in our bodies and in our minds that keep us from moving close to others. And so uh, for me, any kind of movement towards people and relationships for the sake of my own uh, health and their own health, I think must begin with some of the obstacles that get in the way. Um, what are the messages from our families of origin that have contributed to greater uh, fragmentation and disintegration? And how can I now name those and in the name of Jesus uh, and through the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit and in the context of supporting relationships begin to move out of this so that I can move close to people and, um, and begin to uh, be more vulnerable and more open? But so much of what blocks us are the things beneath the surface that we don't see. So, uh, Jonathan, the long-winded answer for me is I think I do believe how do we understand what it means to be human from a theological perspective is really important. And then what are the 
uh, formational and emotional uh, areas, blockages that are in the way that must be named and identified so that we can begin to move close to people. So um, for me, that, that sounds like a lot of just like um, talk, but, but I do think that's some of the starting points to, uh, so like, for, so for example, I'll just be very clear, mm-hmm. me moving towards three other pastors uh, and saying, for me, came out of a place of vulnerability. I, my email was, guy, I recognize how lonely it can be for me as a lead pastor, where a lot of people cannot identify with the various pressures that I have. I'm, I, I, I need other people in a similar space. Would you be open to meeting once a month? For me, that's a vulnerable question. Uh, and the answer is like, yeah, I've been waiting for someone to email me, you know? So that's what they're saying when they're in. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, but I do believe it, it starts theologically and then naming some of the blockages that often get in the way. I, again, like, I just appreciate the, the, the ability and willingness to name the limitations, call them out, and then the courage to actually deal with those things. Uh, because I think the, um, in, in the, the work that I've done, like, the amount of like spiritual runoff that people have to deal with when we don't do that as leaders. Mm. Right. So, um, one of the things that causes me great anxiety and keeps me up at night is conversations that I have with alumni of the work that I do. Yeah. And they have the same idols that I had sometimes exponentially more so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had instituted a Sabbath for our two month residential discipleship program. And an alumni came by and was like, what are they doing? Why are they resting? And I just looked at him and I was like, oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't get that. He, I hadn't been formed and discipled in a way that made rest a priority and obeyed the fourth commandment, right? Like it was, yeah. And, and so the, the thoughts of that happening um, mm. caused me great anxiety. And so to, for someone to express what that looks like, to deal with it, reach out, I think is really helpful for me. And I hope encouraging to people who are listening to be able to do similar work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and for me, this is, Jonathan, what you're naming there is, for me, an ongoing reality that I am facing. Um, You know, I I have discovered there's parts of me uh, that I thought were beyond, you know, the stress or anxiety that I'm feeling. I thought, why why am I feeling what I am feeling? And part of it is there's still lots of residue of areas of brokenness and, and, and wounding that I still need to address. Mm-hmm. And so um, just a couple of weeks ago, I had, again, another um, very challenging conversation over Zoom with a longtime congregant. And I was very anxious about just the nature of the conversation and found myself just, again, not getting a satisfying breath. And then I, I, I sat down for 45 minutes to do some interior examination and I discovered what was at the core of what I was feeling. And for me, it, it sounds so simple, but I think this is some of the work that we're all called to do in some level, especially leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, were, there were things that I was believing in, on, in, a, in a subterranean kind of level that theologically I know is not true and psychologically and rationally I know it's not true, but it's been attached to my soul on such a level that it's hard for me to escape. And so I was asking myself, why am I so anxious about this conversation? What's going on in me? And 
after 45 minutes, I landed on about eight different messages that are in me as I was preparing to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. And th- these were the messages essentially. People disagreeing with me means I'm a bad leader. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that's not true. People disagree with Jesus. Not only disagree, they crucified him. And he, he's the best leader the world has ever seen. Uh, you know, another message, if we're not on the same page, I'm, I'm doing something wrong as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not true. Paul and the apostles often didn't see eye to eye. And he's one of the most important leaders of the church. Uh, you know, I'm causing division by bringing up delicate issues. That was in my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Things will end wrong and it'll be my fault. That was in my mm-hmm. mind. Uh, I need you to like me for me to be okay. That's in my mind. Mm-hmm. I need you to agree with me for me to be okay. That's in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will, people who leave the church expose my deficiencies in leadership. This is everything I'm carrying into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, unless I'm able to sit down in the presence of God and, and compassionately uh, and curiously search my own soul through the spirit, to begin to pull out some of these messages, um, we're going to have a hard time moving forward. So for me, I had to do that work, uh, and and that didn't. That's not one of those stories. Of, well, ten years ago, I had to have a hard conversation. And I asked myself these eight questions. No, it was like two weeks ago. Uh, I had to have this conversation and ask myself these questions. So, mm-hmm. um, but this is this is the the mo- the difficult work of following Jesus and being a leader in you know, in the world. Hmm. I Something that's just um, occurring to me as I listen to both of you talking about this is, you know, both of you are people who are very focused and have thought a ton about uh, emotional and mental health and spiritual disciplines. Uh, and yet you, you're, so you're also people who are advocating, speaking very boldly and clearly about idols and things that are wrong and trying to create change in your contexts. And the reason that I point that out is I think there are probably some listeners who have a, 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 a like a little bit of, a, of an aversion, even if it's just a lingering one, to trying to um, implement ideas of emotional health in a community where it requires reaching out consistently in a way that causes you pain to people who question your humanity. And you know, that that is sort of a giving in to the ideology that you're trying to fight or it's it's like dealing with, um, you know, it could make you like a moderate in the way that Dr. King decried, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't I don't know if any of you, ha- either of you have any thoughts about that. It just, it, it strikes me that there are some people who might see what you're doing as impossible or just difficult, maybe too difficult. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you know, for me, I, th- I think, Sia, as I understand, as I hear you, what I hear is, um, you know, the, the reason that I try to, and at New Life, we try to hold these together and and you know reject this type of formational compartmentalization, is the reason I give myself to this kind of interiority and emotional health is not simply for the sake of my own self regulation and for the sake of my own self awareness. Uh, the goal is to be a more loving presence in the world. And whether that, whether that love is expressed in intimacy with my wife or children, or whether it's expressed in, uh, you know, naming policies that are causing uh, dehumanization and marginalization in the world, um, 
I do these things not just so I can feel better about myself, that so 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 I can love more powerfully uh, in the world. Um, people who tend to view emotional health as simply uh, needing to uh, uh, sustain the work that I'm doing for the sake of maintaining the status quo, mm. um, you know, that, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to love in a way that's uh, powerful, that's individual, interpersonal, and institutional. Um, so, but I, I can see the gravitational pull where people say these two things cannot coexist in this way. It sounds like, though, your your answer a little bit is there's always going to be an abundance of love in God. There's, there's It's not a zero-sum game. You put it towards this, you put it towards that. You're trying to cultivate yourself and your heart in a way that you can live in the abundant love of God more fully. Absolutely. And all of its manifestations, With that, that's without question. I I want I, I'm I have a, a forming thought that I I rarely say out loud, um, but I'm, I'm I'm just wondering what you guys are thinking. So as you said that, Sai, I think there are a couple of things that I've experienced pushback about that that kind of were sparked by what you said. So, um, like pursuing emotional health, and you know, as I would phrase, like emotionally healthy activism, prayerful resistance, like sustainable. Um, active love in this world is a sacred work and a holy work. Um, like, so let's say a white person or a racially assigned Chinese or, Korean, or Asian American person like comes up to me and says, "Like, can we have a conversation?" Like, I think that is a holy invitation. That's an invitation to discipleship. Hmm. It's not. I have to educate them about their supremacy or their presuppositions, right? Um, Wait, why, I, why in this scenario are they coming to talk to you? Well, I think, you know, I'm a black American. And so they, you know, when someone says like, I'm going to go ask my black friend, I'm, I turn into that black friend a lot of times. Okay. Right? And so it could be, and, and I, I actually have boundaries around this, whether it's like a personal thing or a professional thing or, you know, people from the past, like this is to do this work. You know, second Corinthians for me, Second Corinthians chapter five, like we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though he was making his appeal through us. Like I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We're t- we want to be ambassadors of, or ministers of reconciliation. If that is my position in this conversation, especially when it comes to racial justice, like this, like this is a moment where Jesus is present. It's not a moment for me to be self-preserving or pursue a type of self-actualization through this conversation. But you also have boundaries, you just said, around these types of questions. So sometimes it is a moment for self-preservation. Well, it's well, it's actually not self-preservation because it's not about preserving myself. It's about, um, oh, what would be the word? It's not about self-protection. I think it's about resisting the urge to hurry um for the for um the sake of um what i might believe needs to happen in this conversation so for example um i think one of the marks of being an emotionally unhealthy activist and an emotionally unhealthy person who is like engaged in consistent resistant work is to do things now uh, like if if I don't respond to this email or respond to this phone call or meet with this person as soon as as soon as they need me to, mm-hmm. what is going to happen? 
right? And if I believe that I'm the savior in that situation, or I'm the only person that can communicate with them in that situation, or the only one that can be the minister of truth and reconciliation in that moment, then I've stepped into the tomb and taken up something that I'm not supposed to, right? And so I think for me, when I slow down, I'm actually like, I have to recenter Jesus and decenter me so that I can come in like, on my knees reliant on Jesus as opposed to relying on like the strategies that I've created or the books that I've read to like convince this person of whatever their their stuff is. Because mm. I, I haven't I haven't grounded myself yet. So it doesn't feel like self-protection, um, but it does feel like preparation for sure. Like a uh uh um the the song like Lord prepare me to be a sanctuary, right? So when I sit across from this person there's room for the Holy Spirit and not my education, not just my education. I don't know what Pastor Rich thinks about that. Yeah, but, but Pastor, I, I guess maybe to what degree do you think there is room to think that way in terms of like, I, I'm going to disengage with this person because I know this is going to be an extremely painful conversation and I just need to deal with my own mental health at this moment? For, for me as a pastor, um, I, I have... I have to wrestle with the various the spectrum of interest or uh, the level of engagement that people want to have on on this. For some people, they come very curious and humble and willing to learn and ask questions. And then for some, um, they're not there to ask questions. Um, they're they're there to tell me, um, you know, how I should be thinking, how I should be preaching, etc. For for people who come with humility and a willingness to learn and ask questions and uh, you know, and, and I'm asking questions, they're asking questions, there's a sense of mutuality there. I'm very much open to it. Uh, when people are already have already are coming to me with very fixed ideas. Now, how do you know? Sometimes you don't know that. So, so uh, sometimes it's a matter of, sure, I'll meet and then go, I don't think I'm going to meet again with that person because it's pretty clear that they have a particular end in mind of my own conversion, namely, mm. uh, and not mm -hmm. in the conversation. Right. So uh, I've had to put up plenty of boundaries to say, Hey, Pastor Rich, can we meet again? And that first meeting was a train wreck. And for me, I'm saying, no, I don't think so. And here's why. Uh, now, I recognize in my context, there's power differentials. I'm the, I'm the pastor of the church. I hold uh, the most amount of spiritual power in that way. Uh, uh, and so I could say, no, uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, but the people that I am creating lots of space for are for people who genuinely have questions. Now, you don't really know that until you meet with them. Uh, and, but I've had to, there's plenty of people that I have to say, you know, I, I don't think I have the margin to have a conversation because what we're having is not a conversation. Um, it's just you telling me how I should be thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. and so I'm not going to give myself to that. We're, we're out of time, unfortunately, but, um, is there anything pastor that you want to plug apart from obviously the book, the deeply formed life, um, or anywhere that you would like people to follow you? Yeah, if folks are interested in what I'm up to, uh, they can go to uh, richvelotas.com where you can see uh, what's happening with the Deeply Formed Life as well as future writing projects that I'm currently involved in, uh, as well as on social media. Social media is often where I'm testing out <laughs> sermon content and uh, <laughs> I've seen that. seeing what fits and what does not. And um, uh, so at Rich Velotis on Instagram and on Twitter is usually where I'm hanging out. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thanks, guys. All the best to you with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember to subscribe to this show and rate and review wherever you're listening from. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra, and our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at KTF Press. Join us next week for our interview with Sandra Maria Van Opstel. I'm Susie Lahoud here with Jonathan Walton and Cy Hookstra. Wait, how did you just say my last name? Isn't it Hookstra? Hookstra. You get so confused, Cy. Uh, who? 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 W H O? Who? Because I, I confused into my head. I'm so sorry. I, you're doing great, though. Yeah, you are. It all sounds Jonathan's very good. Jonathan's trying not to laugh at me. That's yep. Jonathan <laughs> saying. Because I, I didn't want to like easier if I did it in a know. Russian accent. Okay, <laughs> do it. Do it in a Russian accent for just for just yeah, just just to uh, like and, loosen yourself up. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna do it again. I'm Susie Lahoud here with Jonathan Walton and Sai Hookstra. Today we have interview with Rich Volodis. <laughs> he. T- <laughs> No, that was perfect, Susan. We got it.